plastic wrap mattress. There's nothing quite like it. Last time I was on a plastic mattress, I was about one years old um, until arriving here. It is, it's such a joy to be together though, isn't it? Just spending time in God's Word, spending time as, as family, getting to know one another, having Noah kick you in the shin while you're playing soccer and that stuff. It's just, it's precious and it's precious to be around God's Word. Let's go ahead and turn in our Bibles, please, to Colossians 1. You know, as I said last night, what a book we are in to be spending time with the Lord in. Colossians 1 is such a, a beautiful book. In the opening eight verses of the book of Colossians, Paul takes time to celebrate the miracle of this church's existence in Colossae. He takes them in the opening eight verses down a trip down memory lane. He reminds them and celebrates the grace of God in their lives, reminding them that, listen, you are saints, you are faithful brothers in Christ. Everything you have as Sovereign Grace Church in Parramatta has happened in Christ. You are saints, you've been declared holy before him, you are brothers, you are family, and it's all happened because of what Christ has done. And then in verses 9 through 14, he prays for them, that they would understand this more, that they would grasp this more, and be all the more amazed and then live it out. And from verses 15 through to the end of the chapter, which is where we're going to be spending our three sessions, Paul starts to take them to fresh and breathtaking vistas of who Christ is, the one who is our life. You know, one commentator says, Verses 15 to 20 are among the most closely reasoned presentations of the supremacy of Christ anywhere in the Bible. When commentators and smart guys like that tell us that, we want to be paying careful attention to every word. And so this morning we're going to look at the first four verses of this precious text. <clears throat> we're going to read from verses 15 to the end of verse 18. This is the word of the Lord. If you're making notes, I've called this message the supremacy of Christ over all. This is the word of God. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is, he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Let's pray. Lord, I do thank you for your powerful and unchanging word. Lord, I do thank you that as we spend time in your word, it is all sufficient, it is all enlightening. As we follow it, we can be equipped for every good work. Oh Lord, I pray today, would you just show us yourself all the more? Would we slow our busy spirits down to just listen to you? to hear about you, and would we be freshly amazed in you. Lord, help us to do this by your grace. Holy Spirit, we invite you, work amongst us, do what only you can. 
In Jesus' name, amen. You know, almost 100 years ago now, in 1893, Kent Hughes writes, the famous World Columbian Exposition was held in Chicago. And some 21 million people, an astronomical number of people, especially in those pre-automobile days, visited the exhibits. America, and particularly Chicago, which had risen phoenix-like from the Great Fire of 1873, was showing off to the rest of the world. And the show was good. Among the features of the Columbian Exposition was the World Parliament of Religions, in which representatives of the world's religions met to share their best points and perhaps come up with a new world religion. D.L. Moody, the infamous, saw this as a great chance for evangelism. Moody commissioned evangelists and assigned them to preaching posts throughout the city. He used churches and rented theatres. He even rented a circus tent to preach the word. Moody's friends wanted him to attack the Parliament of Religions. But he refused, saying, I'm going to make Jesus Christ so attractive that men will want to turn to him. D.L. Moody knew that preaching Christ preeminent, the peerless, supreme, all-sufficient Christ, clearly presented, would do the job. And indeed, it did. The Chicago campaign in 1893 is considered to be the greatest evangelistic work of Moody's celebrated life as thousands came to Christ. <laughs> Moody's approach and strategy is, I am going to preach Christ and him crucified. I am going to preach Christ preeminent, the peerless, supreme, all-sufficiency of Christ, because I believe as I do, people will get saved. And they did. He didn't talk about world religions, he just preached Christ and it completely changed people's lives. That was Moody's approach. But that approach did not originate with D.L. Moody. No, it originated with the apostles themselves. When you examine the Gospels, that's exactly what they're doing. They're like, as for me and my house, I'm preaching Christ and him crucified. They're telling us about Jesus. They're amazing us with Jesus and who he is in peerless, supreme, all-sufficiency. And that is exactly what Paul is doing right here to the church in Colossae. He's preaching Christ supreme and all-sufficient in all things. And oh my, what a message it is. See, the Gnostics, these false teachers that arrived in Colossae, which is why he's writing this book to them, these false teachers had their own version of the parliament of religions. And as a result, they were preaching and sharing in a church that actually would be about this size. It was not a huge church. And yet they were preaching that, listen, Jesus is a good place to start, but he's certainly not the way, the truth, and the life. He's like a rung on the ladder, but so are angels. There's lots of different people we can turn to. They're rungs on the ladder as you seek to make your way to God himself. That's what these false teachers were teaching, and it was beginning to get some traction. These false teachers are claiming that Jesus is just one of thousands of different people you can turn to as you seek to make your way to God himself. And so Epaphras, this young man who had actually got saved under Paul's preaching in Ephesus, actually lived in Colossae. And so when he went back to Colossae, he planted a church like Sovereign Grace Church of Parramatta. 
And these false teachers are coming in and preaching something different. So Epaphras goes back to Paul and says, what's up with this? What do I do? This is Paul's response. This is Paul writing to them to help them see you are wrong about Jesus. And just like D.L. Moody, he preaches unashamedly the supremacy of Christ to them. He wants them to see Christ. He wants to show them Jesus. And accordingly, what a passage this is. I have three points then this morning. Number one, the supremacy of Christ in personhood. Number two, the supremacy of Christ in creation. And then number three, the supremacy of Christ in the church. But I come to this text really with just one hope, and it's the hope that we'll be freshly amazed and freshly standing in awe of who Jesus is, that our hearts will want for nothing else as we just see him in peerless preeminence and all-sufficiency. Point one then, the supremacy of Christ in personhood. This is where Paul begins his preaching, verse 15. He says, He is the image of the invisible God. Those opening words there describes Christ as the image of the invisible God. It is provocative, it is bold, it is loud. You remember this church is being taught that Jesus is just a rung on the ladder. And Paul is helping him see Jesus ain't no rung on the ladder. He's the destination. He's everything. He's the supreme one of all. He's not the rung on a ladder. He is the destination. He is the image of the invisible God in all his fullness. See, that is a bold and loud and provocative statement. All the way through the Old Testament, we are taught that God is invisible. You can't actually see God. He, he's invisible. And yet in John 1 verse 18, which actually begins by affirming that statement that no one has ever seen God, goes on to say the only God who is at the Father's side, He, Jesus, has made Him known. All the way through the Old Testament, no one has seen God. He is invisible. Jesus rocks up and everybody's saying, this is him. He is the image of the invisible God. In him, verse 19, the fullness of God dwells bodily. He ain't no wrong on a ladder. He's the destination. He's where we're going. He's God. He's the king. Jesus himself said he was that. In Mark chapter 9, verse 37, we read, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not just me, but him who sent me. He's helping them see, he, if this person receives me, they don't just receive me, they receive God because I am he. He says it again in John 13 verse 9. Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How? Because we're the same. I'm the image of the invisible God in me. The fullness of God dwells bodily. That's why we read in Hebrews 1 verse 3, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. Isn't that wonderful? He is the image of the glory of God, an exact 
imprint, an exact representative. He's not some cheap, fake imitation. He's the real thing. He's not a rung on a ladder to get us to God. He is the destination. He is God himself. My friends, I want to encourage you then, if you want to know what God is like, then look at Christ. Sometimes you can hear people say, you know, I quite like Jesus, but I don't really like God of the Old Testament. He seems really nasty. He's the same king. It's the same person. The Trinity, three in persons, one in essence. You know, to see Christ is to see God. If you want to know about the mercy and love and grace of God, look at Jesus and you'll see it all there. If you want to know about the purity and holiness and strength of God in all his might, look at Jesus. He's exactly the same. If you want to know about the tenderness and gentleness and compassion of God, then look to Christ. They're the same. He is a perfect image of the invisible God, an exact imprint of his nature. And just a while ago, we're preaching through Luke as a local church, and I was preaching through the Transfiguration. And I just think it's one of the most amazing scenes in the Bible where you've just got this guy, Jesus, this person that everybody thinks primarily is a man, even though they think he's the Messiah. And all of a sudden, it's like God just turns their blind eyes open for a minute, and they see him radiating light and clothed in white. It's like for a moment, they see him for who he really is. And no sooner do they see it that they're blinded again and he changes. But what they saw in that moment is who he actually is. He's God, the image of the invisible God. For in him, the fullness of God dwells bodily. Listen, Jesus is like no one who has ever lived because he is supreme in personhood. He's not a rung on the ladder. He's not one to pick from from thousands. He's the one. He's the destination. But that's not all he is. Number two, we get to see the supremacy of Christ in creation. It doesn't just end with personhood. It then continues in creation. Look with me again at verse 15, and we'll read through to 17. For he, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. You know, right at the start of that section in verse 15, part B, Paul calls Christ the firstborn of all creation. That is a point in the scripture that could be so easily misunderstood. It could be misunderstood to think that therefore the firstborn of all creation is referring to origin. But it's not. It's referring to rank, his position, his preeminence, his supremacy in all things. See, this is where the Jehovah's Witnesses get it very, very wrong. They think that Jesus was created by God. He's just a part of creation. But John 1 verse 1 answers that for us. We read in John 1 verse 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God. Uh, sorry, and the Word was with God, 
and the Word was God. He goes on very quickly to explain that that Word is Christ. So in the beginning was the Christ, and the Christ was with God, and Christ was God. Next time a Jehovah's Witness knocks on your door, have a chat with them about that verse. It shows us that Christ is God. He is the image of the invisible God. He is Him. He has never not existed. He is part of the Trinity, part of the Godhead. This verse here about the firstborn of all creation isn't talking about origin. It's talking about His rank. It's something that God Himself talks about, the Father Himself talks about in Psalm 89. Psalm 89, we read, He shall cry to me, You are my Father, my God and the rock of my, my salvation. And I will make him the firstborn, the highest of all the kings of the earth. He's not talking about creation, he's talking about rank. This is my son, my only son, and I will make him preeminent and supreme in all things. He will have rights beyond all others. He will have honor and authority above all others. He will be supreme in all of creation. And that's exactly what Paul's telling us here. Christ is the firstborn of all creation. Christ is supreme in all of creation. And in verses 16 to 17, I just think dramatically, he really pads that out for us of what that all means. And it's amazing. First up then, we see that Christ is supreme in all creation because Christ is the founder of all creation. He made it all. Verse 16, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. You know, everything, everything was made and has been made through Christ. Absolutely everything. What was Jesus doing before there was time? He was imagining the earth with the Father. What was he doing during the process? He was creating it. My friends, if you want to know then, in Isaiah 40, where it says, who has measured the waters of the earth in the hollow of his hand? The answer to that is Jesus has. He has. 70% of our earth is filled with water. One of the joys of traveling is you get to see a lot of water. You take off from Sydney, when you go to LA, you take off from Sydney, and within about two minutes, you're over water. 15 hours later, you land, and you come just over water, and then your first land you see is where you land. 15 hours! That's a lot of water! And that's just one of the oceans. We can't measure those waters in the hollow of our hand, but Jesus can. He can hold it for us. Who has marked the heavens off with a span, the span of our hand? You know why great scientists call it the known universe? What they mean by that, it's the known universe, because we haven't built a telescope big enough yet to see how big it might be. So that's all we know. Whereas Jesus says, I know exactly how big it is, and I can mark it off with a span of my hand. In Isaiah 40, we read, Who has enclosed all the dust of the earth in a measure, and weighed the mountains on scales and the hills in a balance? Well, not us. Remember a couple of years ago when I went to Nepal, and I spent some time with my friend there, Brother Barnabas, and he took me to this um, coffee shop right at the top. Well, it, it felt like I was at the top of a mountain. I clearly wasn't. But it, we were at the top of this mountain having coffee. And he said, oh, look over there. And I'm like, all I can see is clouds. And he said, yeah, just keep looking. 
And so we spent time together chatting, and as the clouds begin to clear, you could see the start of where Everest would be. And those things are massive. He said, we, we could take a walk up there one day. I said, negative. <laughs> no, I don't even like walking to the shops. I get tired. I'm not planning to go out there. He thought I was joking. I'm like, I'm serious. But you realize really quickly, these things are massive. No one can measure these things. No one can weigh these things. But Jesus tells us here, well, I can. I was there when they were founded. I breathed out the sun. I put the mountains in their places. I marked off the heavens with the breadth of my hand. I measured out the waters with my hands as I created these things. See, before Christ, the nations are like a drop in a bucket, and I count it as dust on the scales. Listen, the next time you panic about the might of a nation, think about that verse. Russia, China, Babylon, Assyria, Rome, we've had many of these things for thousands of years. And God says, oh, I'll tell you where they fit in compared to my supremacy. They're like a drop in a bucket that if it falls off the bucket, you won't even be that worried about it. You just carry on with your life. Such is his supremacy and rank and personhood. He is the king. Nothing's changed that. Even the kings, their hearts are in his hand. It says in Ecclesiastes, we're all like grasshoppers before him. Such is his might. So the next time you think, man, this person could change the entirety of the universe. Before God, they're just going, <laughs> you know, it's really not that big a deal. Such is his rank and splendor. He has created all things. He is the founder of all creation. He is the founder of the heavens and the earth. And Paul tells us there, he is the founder of the visible and the invisible. Again, this would be a bold statement to be making to this crowd at this time because these false teachers have come in and they are teaching that, listen, we can pray to Jesus, that will probably help you, it's a rung on a ladder, but we should also worship the angels. We should worship them because they're heavenly beings. And what Paul's saying is, nah. We worship Jesus who is the creator of all the heaven and the earth, the visible and the invisible. Those angels that you worship, they're merely creatures. And I know the one who made them. His name is Jesus. And we worship him as King of kings and Lord of lords. He is supreme then because he is the founder of all creation. And then Paul tells us he's supreme because Christ is the goal of all creation. He says there in verse 16, All things were created through him and for him. Everything has been made for Christ. That's staggering. Peter O'Brien in his commentary says it this way. He says, this is a stunning statement. Paul's teaching about Christ as the goal of all creation finds no parallel in Jewish wisdom literature, nor in any of the rest of Jewish materials for that matter. For everything began with him and will end with him. All things sprang forth at his command, and all things will return to him at his command. For he is the beginning, and he is the end. The Alpha and Omega, and one day everything will give him glory. Do you hear that? One day every knee will bow. Even the trees of the fields will clap their hands when he comes back as the king. One day every knee will bow before him. That's why Paul tells us in Romans 11, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. 
He's making it clear that it's all him. He made it and it's all going to him. He's the object of it all. Everything you see, every atom, every neutron is all designed to bring him glory. See, our world constantly pushes Jesus to the circumference and ignores him. They exchange the king for the kingdom. I'll take your kingdom, but I don't want a king. I'll hang, hang out with creation, but I don't want the creator. And when stuff goes well, that's because of us. When stuff goes bad, that's your fault. But our society does. But you know, even in Christianity, we can do the same thing. It's just different. We start to have Jesus as like a bumper sticker on the back of our car, and that's where he fits in our life. He helps me out sometimes. Rather than realizing, no, just stop. He's the center of it all. He created you, and everything will go back to him. And everything in between is about him. For from him and through him and to him are all things. He's not a bumper sticker on a car. He's driving the car that we're in the back of. It's all him. We were bought with a price. We're all his. Everything. Like we sang this morning, let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Why? Because everything goes to him. He's the creator and he's the God. What a privilege that we have to know that and believe that right now, don't you think? It's going to be a shock for so many when they get there on that last day. But we know what's coming. We get to live as if that last day was now and give him the worship this day as well. Christ is supreme in creation because he was the creator and he's the goal of all creation. But he's also, we learn in verse 17, he's also the sustainer of all creation. This is amazing. Verse 17, and he is before all things and in him all things hold together. He is before all things. He is the Alpha and Omega. He is the beginning and the end. And he is the sustainer of all things. You know, the only reason why your heart is still beating right now is because he's sustaining it. Not you. The only reason why your lungs are still going out by themselves is because he's sustaining it. The only reason why you're still digesting food that we all do on these retreats. I mean, it's the only place in the world you have breakfast and you come out 10 minutes later, it's morning tea. <laughs> but the only reason why your body is digesting food, I don't think you're thinking about it. It's happening because he is sustaining that in your life. He holds all things together. Not just you, but the universe. In Hebrews 1 verse 3, where it begins, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, which I said before. It then continues, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Isn't that amazing? The only reason why it's still spinning is because he upholds it. The only reason. You know, when I was looking and examining this message, I came across an article on atoms. It's not my usual type of article, 
But I was intrigued having come across this section of scripture and I found out all types of things about atoms. You know, in an atom there are, as you would probably know, protons and neutrons and electrons. And there's a lot going on there. If you could take a picture of an atom, it's like there's an awful lot going on in this atom. And atoms are the building blocks of all of life. So everything is an atom, whether it be a chair or you. Everything is made up of millions and millions and millions of atoms. If you could sort of pump up an atom so it was supersized, it looks like a solar system. There's so much going on. But here was the point of the article. The point of the article was however good science has become, they still can't quite work out what keeps the neutrons and the electrons and the protons still going in orbit. <laughs> they can't work it out. Why doesn't everything just implode? I don't know. I do. <laughs> Hebrews 1. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. The reason why everything doesn't implode is because he holds it back. He keeps it all going. He keeps it all spinning in the way that he does in his sovereignty and splendor and grace. John Kitchen in his commentary says it this way. He says, we owe both our existence and our continuance to Christ. Life as we know it, including all the so-called laws of nature, is dependent upon the ongoing, ever-present, continuous command of Christ, which holds all the elements of the universe together in an ordered reality. On the macro scale, this includes the orbits of the planets around the stars. And on the micro scale, this includes the dynamic powers that hold atoms and their subatomic particles in whirling, consistent wholeness. Christ is the glue that holds all things together. He is the tuning fork to which all created reality adjusts and conforms. He is the principle of cohesion in all the universe. Isn't that amazing? It's all Christ. He is the glue that holds it all together. He is the tuning fork from which everything rounds. And he is the principle of cohesion in the entirety of the universe. From the stars to your hearts. Listen, what a faith-building and comforting reality this is when the penny drops on what this means. Jesus is the one who died in your place. In all his supremacy, he is the one who gave his life away as a ransom for many. Having put your faith in Jesus, he is the one who comes to live in all his fullness of power in your life. And he is the one in majesty, he is the one who created the stars and numbers them and names them and sustains them, Isaiah tells us, so that not one is missing. If he numbers and names and the stars so that not one is missing, how much more must he be naming and sustaining you so that you're not missing? <laughs> My friends, the all-powerful king of kings is watching your life closely. You're not just a number in his kingdom. You're a name. And you're worth more to him than a thousand stars. So he sustains you and keeps you. Jesus Christ is supreme in personhood. He is supreme in creation. And just to continue helping us see how intimate he is to our lives, we then see third and final point. The supremacy of Christ 
in the church. Look at me, verse 18. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. My friends, what that means is he is not just supreme and head over all creation. He's not just the creator and goal and sustainer of all creation. He is also the head over the church. What a happy reality that is for Sovereign Grace Church, Parramatta. However good Riley is, and he is good. He is nothing compared to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The head of your local church is Christ Jesus himself. But more than that, he's not just the head of the church corporately. The church is a body. The church is a family. The church is made up of particular people that he died for. And what we discover then is he is our heads personally. Not just a number, a name, a child that he knows the hairs on your head. You're coming and you're going, your thoughts before they even arrive. What an incredible reality to know we have one who's supreme over us. You see, in our lives, the older I have got, the more I have realized there are so many things that can make us fearful. I think that's why in the Bible we're called sheep. I mean, I don't know about you, but I would have liked to be called eagles for Jesus, or lions, mm, sheep. And having lived in Wales for 17 years of my life, I was around a lot of sheep. They're stupid in every way. And one of the most stupid things about them is they're scared of everything. And it's kind of like us, don't you think? There are so many things in our lives that can make us fearful. And they're not all crazy things. I mean, we go to the hospital. We're getting on with our lives, but we feel a pain. And oh, maybe we should get it checked out. And, and you go to the hospital and they give you a call. And they say, I need you to come in because it's bad news. And what you actually feel straight away is fear. Well, what's, what's this going to mean? What's this going to mean for my life? How, how's this going to pan out? Or the girl that you'd been hoping to get married to lets you know kindly, nah. You're like, oh. But actually what you feel is, is fear because, well, what if there's no one else? What if then this is my life and I'm going to be alone for the rest of my life? And, and you start to feel f fear and dismayed. And Lord, how could you do this? If you really love me, how would you do this? We start to feel anxiety and fear. The job that you've enjoyed for years. Your boss has just told you, listen, you've been a good employee, but we're restructuring and it's going to be coming to an end. And you're coming out of COVID and you realize, well, what, what does that mean? How am I even going to get another job? And you start to feel fear. We get fearful, don't we? Even though the Lord tells us everything in the hills is mine, all the silver and gold is mine, we start to feel, yeah, but it ain't mine. And we get fearful. The government COVID rules. I mean, praise the Lord, it seems to be that we're through them. Listening to Jason from Crusaders last night, apparently it's a thing of the past, which I thought was great. 
But the COVID rules, they do seem to be ever-changing, do they not? And it has implications all the time. And you think, well, they can be fearful. Of, well, how, how's this going to work? Some people would probably be thrilled. Christians in Australia will be thrilled that we're not wearing masks anymore. Some Christians will be freaking out. What? We can get fearful about these things. Or the kids. They seemed to love the Lord when they were little. They were easy. They used to tell, talk about Jesus. They used to listen in to the quiet times. But as they've got older, they've increasingly shown a lack of interest in the Lord. And what we start to find is actually we're getting really fearful about that. What's this going to mean? Where's this going to mean for them? I mean, what if they're not interested in God? And we get fearful. Listen, there are so many things in lives, if we're honest, that can make us fearful. But this text, I think, speaks into all those things because what this text means, listen, what it means is there are great hopes for all of our tomorrows. And there are great hopes because Jesus is on his throne. And he created you. And he guarantees, I will sustain you. That's why we're here in Isaiah 41. <clears throat> Fear not. For I am with you. Be not dis be dismay dismayed, for I am your God. He personalizes it. I know you. For I will help you. I will strengthen you. And I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. That's Jesus. That's the way he operates to us in and through our lives. My friends, in you and through your life, you have nothing to fear. Because the one who created you is also going to sustain you. And he will keep you to the end. So folks, I want to encourage you. Behold your God. This is your king. This is your Christ. He isn't a rung on the ladder. He's the destination. He is supreme in personhood. He is the image of the invisible God. For in him the fullness of God dwells bodily. He is supreme in creation. For from him and through him and to him are all things. And he is supreme over the church, which means you. He's got you. He always will have you. So do not fear. But instead be amazed at who he is. Marvel at who he is. And never lose sight of just such a great king he really is. Let's pray. Well, Lord, it is an astounding privilege to just sit and look at you. Lord, in honesty, I don't think we do it enough. We get distracted with 101 other things and just forget the priority of sitting at your feet and just looking at you. But when we do look at you, we stand amazed. Lord, you stagger us, and I pray throughout this whole weekend, would you continue to stagger us with who you are? Would we stand in awe of you as the creator of all? Would we stand in awe of you, the one who is supreme over the church, who is supreme in personhood, who is supreme over creation, who is supreme over the nations, and who is supreme over our lives? Would we stand in awe of you? Would we not fear? Would we not be dismayed? But would we be amazed 
And would we worship you all the more as a result? In Jesus' name, amen.